our uh, scripture this morning is Acts 2, verses 40 and 41 and 47. It's on page 967 of the Pew Bibles, and I'll be reading in the New American Standard Version. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here this morning. You being here encourages us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. I want to remind our youth that beginning uh, today at 415 in the Fellowship Hall will be our foundations for 2006, which is a program that will last throughout the month of October, meeting today the 5th, the 6th, the 15th, and the 22nd. And the theme for this month will be citizenship, and be sure and be a part of that uh, each year. At this time of year, there is a tremendous blessing that is made available to our high school young people, and we encourage you to take advantage of that again this year uh, as we think about what God would have us to be as citizens. We all want to be safe, don't we? Well, as you think about being safe, you might think about how you get home today because, after all, 20% of all fatal accidents happen in an automobile. Then you may think, maybe I better just stay at home, but don't do that. 14% of all fatal accidents happen at home. So maybe you think, well, I just need to walk around. Be careful about doing that because 14% of all fatal accidents happen to pedestrians. Well, you're thinking, okay, at least we're close to some water. We have a rail now and we have air. Be careful there because 16% of all fatal accidents happen by those three. Now, be careful before you say the answer is to go to the hospital. 30 of the 33% remaining, 32% of all deaths happen at the hospital. Now, here's the good news. Of the 1% remaining... Point zero zero one percent die in worship. That's it. That's it. So you're at the right place. You're at a safe place. And the truth is, even fewer than that die in Bible class. So I hope that you came there this morning. Now, when we think about a safe place, the church really is a safe place. When you think about the fact that the Lord, as we have just had read for us the the text so capably this morning, we see that the Lord's church was those that responded, those that heard the preaching of God's Word, those that, it says, gladly received it, were baptized. And then it says, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In other words, when we think about spiritual death or we think about spiritual life, we think about a dangerous existence, we think about a safe place, the church is a safe place. Now, what I want us to realize this morning as we study God's Word is that it might not always be easy to find that safe place. Think about if you were Satan. 
the world, the people that have no care for religion at all, those are easy victories for Satan. But what about then for the other people that they do want to be religious? They do have a hunger, if you will, for God. If you were Satan, how would you go about trying to receive those individuals into your fold? Well, it makes sense. Confuse them about the church. If we could confuse people about salvation and confuse people about the church, confuse people about really what is the safe place and where is it, Think how powerful that tool is for Satan. You see, as we think about this quarter-long study of the family of God, it's a rich blessing because we are learning so much from this book that that we're studying in our Bible classes on Sunday morning and, and we're going through parts of it in our worship hour. It's benefiting us so much to see about the positive aspects of God and His church. But also, it enlightens our eyes so that we can see better how Satan works also, so that we can avoid his snares. Now, contrary to the Sunday bulletin, tonight the sermon title that's slated about the worshiping and the relation of worship to singing, that's not going to be our topic tonight because what we're going to need to do is spend this part of our lesson looking at the prophecy, because the topic today is, when did the church begin? We'll look at some things that dealt from a prophetical standpoint at the beginning of the church. We'll look at the beginning of the church, and then tonight, we'll come back to see how that affects us. In other words, the reality is, the things that we'll study this morning are ever so important, but they are the beginning, if you will, of understanding tonight's lesson, where we put the nuts and bolts to the lesson where we say, how does this affect us today? And I hope that together we'll benefit from the study of God's Word this morning, and then I hope we'll come back together again tonight to see how important it really is that we find the Lord's church. Some have said, as they speak of the beginning of the Lord's church, well, the church began back in the Old Testament days. Others said, no, no, the the beginning of the church was when John the Baptist began preaching. He began that ministry, and that ministry was the beginning of the church. And there are several other points and times and places and individuals that people give credence to say that that was the beginning of the church. Friends, I need to realize this morning, the Scriptures makes it very clear of when the church began. I hope you'll open your scriptures with me this morning and let's begin thinking about an answer to the question from the scriptures of when did the church begin? Matthew the 16th chapter and verse 18. And by the way, if we look at the Matthew, the setting of Matthew 16, it helps us to already give an answer to did it begin in the days of John and his ministry? If you'll think about it, John in his ministry, he began his ministry, of course, before the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he died before Jesus died. As a matter of fact, he died back in Matthew the 14th chapter. And now we're reading in Matthew the 16th chapter. So what Jesus is about to say, he has said already after the death of John the Baptist. Peter has given his great confession that that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And let's read verse 18. And I say to you, Jesus is talking to Peter. I say to you, you are Peter. And on this rock, talking about that great confession, I will, notice the tense here, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now what's the tense there? Did he say, thank goodness John has already built my church. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, it is built right now. 
It didn't happen this day that he's speaking. He said, I will build my church. And when we go over to Mark the ninth chapter, we read something interesting. As we drop back to the eighth chapter in about verse 31, we see a prophecy of Jesus saying that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and that he would be resurrected. Preparing his apostles and teaching them of things to come, he also gave prophecy of the church. Look, if you will, in the ninth chapter in verse 1. He said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now notice here, the church isn't called the church. Here it's called the kingdom. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, there's only three times that the church is called the church in the Gospels. Many and most times in the Gospel, the church is called the kingdom. Many times we can use those words interchangeably, not in every text. There's some text where the word kingdom is used where it wouldn't be appropriate to place in its place the word church. What we learn is that under the new covenant, God's people on this earth, the kingdom, is the church while we're on this earth. And it's that kingdom and the church that will be delivered into heaven. Now, as we think about him saying to those that were standing there, some of you will still be alive whenever the kingdom comes, whenever it is present. And so we're getting a view of the fact that it's going to be within these people's lifetime. Now, as you look at the little chart that is above the slide there in the white, you see that it's a timeline beginning at creation, running to Mount Sinai, Moses. That time period we oftentimes call the patriarchal age because it's the time period that God used the fathers as messengers to get His law out to the people. But then in Deuteronomy the fifth chapter, when God sent Moses to deliver the law to the people, He said to those people, I'm giving you a covenant that your fathers did not have, only you this day has. And so it is, we see that that's a timeline, a mark on the timeline, that that's the beginning, that they were given a law, something to live by that the generations before them did not have. We read in Colossians and we see that those people lived under that law until it was nailed to the cross. Now, it wasn't a law that Moses wrote. You understand Moses was simply the messenger. He was the one that was to deliver the God's law to the people on behalf of God. As a matter of fact, when we look at the end of our old Bible, we see all of those long lists of prophets. Those prophets were not bringing new law over and over to the people. Those people were calling people back on behalf of God to that law that was Moses' law. In other words, that was the law that people were to live by from Mount Sinai all the way to the cross. Now, we won't develop this this morning, but it's worth your thinking about if you never have thought about it. You see on the timeline there, obviously Christ was born 33 years before the cross, which helps us to realize Jesus was a faithful Jew. Jesus never lived a life under the Christian covenant that we think of. You see, He would have kept all of the Jewish holidays. He would have kept all of the offerings and sacrifices that Jews were required and etc., And so it is, we see that that law led to the cross. It's on the cross that we learn from Hebrews, the ninth chapter in verse 15, 16, and 17, that when a will is given, it does not become effective until the one that wrote that will passes away. And so that's why the New Testament, which is Christ's covenant, it did not become effective 
until Jesus died. My parents, they have a farm over in Hickman County. I have one sibling. I'm assuming that my sister and I will inherit that farm. My parents are probably listening to this tape right now. Hint. No, just kidding. All right. And um, now, that is probably already in writing. Now, if that is in writing, can I go today and declare, I want my farm? No. They're healthy. They're alive. They're doing well. When is a will valid? A testament. A will is not valid until the one that wrote it has deceased. And so it is. When did the new covenant become valid? When was it the law by which man was to live? It wasn't until Jesus Christ died. Now think with me for just a moment of this timeline. When he died, he was buried. Three days later, he was resurrected. Forty days after his death, he ascended into heaven. Ten more days, fifty days after his death, we read Acts, the second chapter. You see, now we read about a church that's being established at the beginning of that new dispensation of time. Now, as we think about this, we've just read two passages that dealt with Jesus prophesying, saying that it was going to happen. Some of you are still going to be alive when it happens. I will build my church. And so now let's go to Acts, the second chapter, which has already been so capably read for us. But I want you to notice there and just see again. And by the way, we're going to come back in a few minutes and we're going to spend more time in Acts, the second chapter. But just notice that last sentence in verse 47 again. You see those individuals in 41 that gladly received the word and they were baptized. And he says at the end of 41 that about 3,000 souls were added to them. So you say, now wait a minute. I understand the part about people being saved, but why does it say they were added to them? I don't understand. Who are they being added to? In other words, when people are saved, and then now the Lord's going to talk about addition. What's the addition? Let's read verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You see, what we learn here is, number one, we learn that this is the beginning of the church. And we'll come back and strongly develop that in just a few moments. But this is the first time in all of our Bible that the church is spoken of in a present tense. Everything in your Bible leading up to this, those hundreds and hundreds of pages leading up to Acts 2, they speak of a kingdom on this earth, the church, and they speak of it to come. It hasn't come yet. Acts the second chapter is a huge significant date as we study the church. That is the beginning of the church. Then everything after Acts 2 points back to that church that was established. Now, we'll, we will continue to look at the prophecy. We'll look at the date of the beginning of that church. But tonight is the nuts and bolts. Tonight we'll come back and say, how does this affect us? I want to be a part of the church. Because keep in mind, the church, that's the saved. Those are the ones that the Lord will deliver to the kingdom. I want to be a part of the church. And so tonight, we'll try to look back and see, even throughout the rest of the New Testament, what happened once that church was established. Look with me, if you will, as we still think about whether or not is Acts 2 the point in time that the church was established. It seems like it as we read here. But in the book that we've been reading, Family of God, he brought out something really interesting to me at least. I hope it is to you. Look in Acts the 11th chapter. 
I've read this passage in Acts 11 many times, and I've never noticed a phrase that I noticed when I was studying through his book this past week. As we think about Acts 11, we need to drop back and get a better picture of Acts 10 to better understand and appreciate Acts 11. Acts the 10th chapter is where Peter was shown that vision. And three times in a vision, he was told uh, to eat unclean meat. And each time, he just couldn't believe that he was supposed to eat the unclean meat. And you will remember this was preparing him for the fact that once he saw this vision three times, that there were going to be people down at his doorstep telling him to come and go back with them to a Gentile's house, Cornelius, because he wanted to hear the gospel. Now later, he even says, the Spirit sent me. So in other words, he is literally by belief and conviction, if you will, and maybe I should just say more emotion and feeling, he's thinking, I can't go and have anything to do with Gentiles. We just don't do that. He has been raised that way. That was a part of his past religion and a part of the tradition of the past. And so now he's shown this vision and he's realizing this vision is from God, from the Spirit of God. And now he's convicted that he ought to go. And you can imagine the discomfort that he's having when he arrives at Cornelius' house. He even brings a few others with him. And I have no doubt that that was a part of God's plan and a part of what he wanted. He wanted some company there. He was in an uncomfortable situation for him. He had never gone into Gentiles' homes before and and fellowshiped with them and, and studied about God with them. And so here he is doing that. And as he does that, there's something powerful that unfolds. Look with me, if you will, in verse 44 and 45. We're in Acts 10. If you have your Bible open, we don't have a slide for that one. 44 and 45 in Acts 10, he says, while Peter was still speaking, he's speaking to the Cornelius, the Gentile family there. And while he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them who heard the word. And those of the uncircumcision who believed were, I'm sorry, Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now, we'll develop this point a little stronger when we go back to Acts 2, but let me say this much here. There's two times in the Scriptures that we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was something that individuals received. It was a promise. It was not a command. Never was anyone told to go and be baptized by the Holy Spirit. This was a miraculous occasion that took place in Acts, the second chapter, when the church began among the Jewish nation. And now, five to ten years later, we're not talking about a few days later. We're talking about at least five to ten years later, Peter is sent to Cornelius' house. He's a little hesitant, but at the same time, he immediately goes. He had to be told three times in that vision to eat of that meat. He goes in and he preaches the word. And you can almost imagine, you can almost imagine his jaw kind of dropping a little bit when he sees the miraculous pouring of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, wow, I've not seen this since that day in Jerusalem. In Acts 2, God really does want us to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Because just as it happened back there among the Jews, it's happening now among the Gentiles. And so we read in 48, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay a few days. Now you can imagine though the talk. 
You can imagine other Jews saying, man, did you hear what Peter did the other day? I heard he went to a, a Gentile's house. That's what I heard too. Can you believe he did that? You can imagine all the talk. Well, they had to have a, a little gathering. And they had to talk with Peter. What in the world are you doing, Peter? And so we go in the 11th chapter, and he tells them about God sending him. He tells them that God wanted him to go, and he wanted to preach. Now, here is a thing that is significant. Look at verse 15, the 11th chapter and verse 15. And this is him rehearsing with these others what he was doing. And he said, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Wait a minute. Peter, you used the word beginning. The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it did upon us at the beginning. You're, you're talking about the beginning back when, when you guys first started following Jesus in His public ministry. No, that's not when the Holy Spirit fell upon them in a miraculous measure. Now, wait a minute. You're talking about the beginning whenever John the Baptist, he began preaching, and you're talking about the beginning of John the Baptist preaching. No, no I'm not talking about it. That's not... That wasn't the beginning. You're talking about something that took place right around the resurrected Lord when we went to the tomb early that morning. No, no. Do you realize that as far as 10 years down the timeline, the apostles are still looking back to Acts, the second chapter, and they're calling that the beginning of the church? That's powerful. It appears to us in all study that Acts 2 is the beginning of the church. And then we read on a little bit more and we hear the apostles saying, well, yes, it was the beginning. And that is huge significance for us to understand the church. Now, as we think about this, I'd like for you to think with me. We don't have time to strongly develop this. I just want to throw it out for you to mull over and to chew on. Notice how if Peter had had his way, he probably would have never gone to Cornelius. He did this because he realized the church wasn't his. The ministry wasn't his. He was responsible to the Lord, to the Lord's church. You know, several years ago, I I used to do a jail ministry, and I'd go every Thursday night and study with a lot of the same guys. And we got this little saying down that that we would say to each other. And it was this simple. If you want to start your own church, you can do it any way you want. And they would ask a question. And they would say, well, I I see all these people and they they have women up teaching and preaching. And I'd say, you know the answer to that, right? When I say that, they would grin. They'd say, yeah, if you start your own church... You can do anything you want to do. You just name it. You name it. If you want to start your own church, you can do anything. What about if we don't want to start our own church? What about if we honestly believe that Acts the second chapter, the Lord started His church? then we have to always stop and say, what does the Lord's church do? You see, I have a problem if I start my own church. I can't save anybody. I can't save myself. I can't save anybody that would be a part of my church. 
So then it becomes of huge significance. If the Lord can save, and God has the save to His church, I better always stop and go back to the Lord and be a part of His church. If you would, we're going to look at two passages, and we're going to have to do this very, very quickly, but you'll get the idea, and you can take time to study this on your own. Uh, both passages will be on the screen, but if you want to look at either Isaiah 2, if you want to hold your finger there and go to Acts 2, or if you want to just look at one, and we'll be reading some out of both. Hundreds of years before the church was established, Isaiah wrote about the establishment of the church. And it's interesting to look in Acts, the second chapter, and see how that day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the things that took place that day fulfilled all the prophecy about the Lord's church. In other words, in Acts, the second chapter, they thought individuals were drunk. They'd been baptized by the Holy Spirit. They'd seen the speaking in tongues. They didn't know how to explain this. And so they questioned whether or not these individuals were drunk. And notice as we read... In Acts, the second chapter, in verse 16, he says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Now let's back up and let's read what Isaiah 2 and 2 said. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now we're going to see in just a moment that the it that he's talking about there is the church. It's going to come to pass in the latter days. What does he mean by the latter days? In other words, it didn't happen in the first dispensation of time, the patriarchal age. It didn't happen in the existing time that Isaiah is writing this. Isaiah is writing this under the Mosaic age. It didn't happen there. He says it's going to happen in the last days. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us in the last days that God speaks through His Son Jesus. In other words, Christ and His covenant. That is our guide for the last days. Now, when was the church established? Remember, we were just 50 days after the death of Jesus Christ. When did the new covenant come into effect? When Jesus died on the cross. So we're 50 days into the last days. And what happens? It was prophesied hundreds of years. It's going to happen in the last days. And here we are, just 50 days into the last dispensation of time. And it's taking place. What was going to happen? He said that, the mountain of the Lord's house, in the next slide, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. What is the Lord's house? Well, you remember in First Timothy, the third chapter in verse 15, he speaks of the Lord's house and he says it's the church, church of the living God. And so we know that the Lord's house is the church. But notice, back in Isaiah, it didn't exist. He said that was going to come in the latter days. So see, there we can answer the question, did the church exist in the Old Testament? No. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament writers, the prophets said it's going to happen in the last days. It was going to be established. You remember just a few moments ago, we read Acts the second chapter in verse 47. Remember that was the first time that we read in the Bible when the Lord added to the church. That's the first time we read of the church in present tense. So in other words, he says it's going to be established. It was established on that day. Also, when we read the next verse in Isaiah, look at Isaiah the second chapter. Uh, no, it's still the same verse. Look at the end of verse 2. And he says, And all nations shall flow to it. You see, he's prophesying the beginning of the church. It's going to happen in the beginning of the last ages. Why do you think there were people from all nations there? Remember verse 1 in Acts 2? is the day of Pentecost. There were three religious days, religious feast periods that people would have to travel in if they were faithful Jews, no matter where they lived, to come there. At least the men would. 
This was one of those occasions, the day of Pentecost. So there were people gathered from all nations there. Well, let's read that as we read in Acts the second chapter and verse 5. He said, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. What do you think was preached that day the church begun? Now, when I say this, you're probably going to immediately say, Well, yeah, what did you expect? But now think a bit about it for just a minute. We preach the need of Jesus for a Savior, and the need for us to walk in the Christian light so much that we might just take it for granted. But really, let's stop and ask for a moment. Even by prophecy, what should the church preach? Well, it's prophesied that this would be the teaching of the church. Let's read verse 3 in Isaiah, the second chapter. Many people should come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we will walk in His paths. Now, when we go over to Acts, the second chapter, and 21, what was the teaching? If you want to be saved, call on the name of the Lord. They didn't know who the Lord was, so who was taught? Jesus of Nazareth was taught about. You see, the point was, we have to learn of a Savior, and we have to learn the way of the Savior if we're to be saved. They didn't even know how to call on the name of the Lord. That's why in 37 they said, what shall we do to be saved? In 38 they were told, repent and be baptized, every one of us, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And now notice the very end of Isaiah, the second chapter, in verse 3. That closes by saying, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Right before that, it says, for out of Zion, which is symbolic of Jerusalem there, shall go forth the law. You see, the idea was that the church was going to begin in Jerusalem, and that's going to be the beginning of Christianity, but it wasn't to stay in Jerusalem. It was to be spread throughout. And when we read in Acts, the eighth chapter, because of the persecution that Saul was leading, the church scattered. And when they scattered... They took the Word of God with them, preaching and teaching, just as it was prophesied hundreds of years before. Let's close by making sure we understand this last slide. Notice this next slide as it speaks. The beginning of the church. We see that the time period is Acts the second chapter, 33 AD. That's so important. If you and I want to be a part of the Lord's church... That's when the Lord's church began. If we're part of something that's older than that, or if we're part of something that's younger than that, we're missing that place of safety. We're missing that place that the Lord invites us to be a part of. Where did that take place? It took place in Jerusalem. It's prophesied hundreds of years before that it would take place there. It did take place there. Even ten years after it took place, you remember Peter looked back and he said, You remember what I saw happen to the Gentiles. That's what happened to us in the beginning. And he was referring back to the miraculous pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Now, did Peter stand up and start his church? No. We just scanned a few things just a moment ago. He stood up and he preached about the Lord. And he invited people to live for the Lord. And he invited people to be saved so they could be added to the Lord's church. It's all about Jesus. Tonight, let's come back and and let's see how that affected the rest of the New Testament and how it affects you and I today. Friends, understanding the beginning of the Lord's church was a very important thing to God. When something is great, it's talked about in anticipation. Literally for centuries, God talked about it. When something's great, it's talked about years later. Literally for centuries, we've looked back, and not only have we talked about it, 
we strive to be a part of it. This morning, if you're not a part of Christ, if you haven't been added to His body, we'd urge you to listen to His invitation. It's not a man-made call. It's the Lord that asks us to be believers, that He is the Son of God. It's the Lord that asks us to repent, be willing to turn away from sin. It's the Lord that asks us to believe and to be willing to confess before men that belief. It's the Lord that asks us to be baptized for the remission of our sins. And it's in Acts, the second chapter, that we learn when we do that, that God adds us to the Lord's church. If you haven't done that this morning, won't you do that? Or maybe you have been baptized and sin since then has separated you from God and you want to repent of that and confess sin as James 5 and 16 teaches. If we can help you in any way.